Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo, and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre, and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips, and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story, or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Fiona McIntosh was born in Sussex, England, and spent her childhood travelling with her parents between England and Africa. Fiona's latest book is Royal Exile. It's the first book in the Valisar trilogy. She's written three books in the Percheron series, Odalisk, Emissary and Goddess, and three books in the Quickening series, Mirren's Gift, Blood and Memory and Bridge of Souls. She has also written Betrayal, Revenge and Destiny, which are considered goth fantasies. Fiona is a prolific writer who also writes crime fiction under the name of Lauren Crow. All of Fiona's books have received great acclaim and reviews. As well as being an author, Fiona is a travel writer who finally journeyed to Australia and stayed. She set up a travel writing magazine with her husband and has travelled to many exotic locations for her work. She lives in South Australia now with her husband and two sons. So thanks for joining us today, Fiona. Good morning, Valerie. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be on this. Now, you've written so many fantasy books. What's your interest in fantasy? Where did that come from? Um, well, I think it stems back to childhood, um, the fairy tales that we all enjoyed. Um, I think once I'd walked through that wardrobe, I wasn't walking back. Uh, and I <laughs> sort of got stuck there, loved it, loved the whole concept that, um, there's, you know, that there's magic as possible. Um mm. And then moved away from that as I grew up, of course, and found my way through the usual stack of thrillers and crimes and horror, the Stephen King sort of time that we all go through Mm. as we're growing up. And then, you know, when I had my children, I was looking to start reading again seriously and discovered that it was fantasy that drew me back to it. Um, I read a book by Guy Gavril Kay, which is called Tagana, and that really inspired me made me realize I'd never really lost my joy of this sort of epic adventure. Mm-hmm. And so I started devouring fantasy and realized, wow, grown-up fantasy is um, uh, quite special and, and transported me. I'd get lost in these magnificent stories. Um, and, of course, I had my favorites, and I had to plow through a lot of um, books that, are, you know, that you realize there are different levels of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of said to myself, blimey, if I ever wrote a book, and I think we all hanker after that, this is what I'd like to write. And I decided to act on it when I was having my midlife crisis. I thought, well, <laughs> I'm going to write that damn book that I've always, you know, sort of dreamed of writing. And, and fantasy felt very natural, very comfortable. And before you had your midlife crisis, what were you doing and how did you start writing? Well, I think it's true to say, I mean, I, I often say, look, I've never done any creative writing before and that that is honest um the last time i did any sort of 
you know, write a story type thing. It was back in sort of junior primary. Mm. So I wasn't a writer, a scribbler, but all the jobs that I'd had through my working life required me to word crunch. I was in PR and marketing, so I was constantly writing press releases or writing reports or correspondence. So I was I was involved in the crunching of words. And then my husband and I um, set up, we'd both been involved in the travel industry and we set up our own publication. Mm. And it was when that magazine came on, on stream and it was, you know, it was a one that was sent to people. So online wasn't heard of in those days. Mm-hmm. I'm going back about 20 years um, you know, I began to be almost like an apprentice to Ian, who is an editor and very senior um, newspaper man. And in a way, he was training me without me realizing I was being trained. And I was beginning to write quite good articles about uh, travel, obviously, but learning how to uh, be very disciplined about my writing. Mm. And so I think when I actually decided I'm going to write a book, the mechanics of writing came quite easily to me. Um, it, it wasn't hard. I wasn't as daunted as perhaps someone who has been uh, a chef all their life and suddenly decides I'm going to write a book might find it harder. But for me, the, mecha- the mechanics were there. The, the training was there. It was uh, was the imagination going to be there. And I realized that I'd never lost that love of uh, very imaginative stories. And, and off I went armed you know, with all the right um, sort of tools, so to speak. And I understood how to write in short sentences and how not to bury the lead, you know, get things happening up front. And Mm. um, that all stood me in very good stead. But even though the mechanics are there, writing a travel article is so much shorter than writing, you know, a a giant fantasy book. My word. And I think, and here's something that you can't be taught. And... um, you know, it's sort of a skill, a skill or a gift that you're born with. And I think that is the, the gift of storytelling. Yeah. And I think I am a natural storyteller. Um, you know, when I sit down and I'm regaling the family with something that happened today, I can turn a mere, uh, you know, something that somebody wouldn't even bother to mention, I can turn it into a massive Ben-Hur-like story. <laughs> you know, I tripped over and it becomes this huge event. Um and so I'm an, I didn't realize it, but I'm obviously a natural storyteller. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's something, yeah, I think we're, we inherently have it. And I'm lucky enough that I had it and it came together. Um, I was writing feature stories for the magazine. So uh, that made it, you know, I was used to writing at length, but it's nothing, nothing can prepare you for writing a book the first time where mm. you just, you have to make sure that the story um doesn't lose its way and that it, you know that it's got great pacing and you know the tension doesn't ever um, die on you and uh, there are a lot of structural parts to putting together a story mm. that you need to pay attention to that I suppose um, readers who don't write just expect and uh, almost take for granted which are is fair enough but as a practitioner um, yeah we have to understand or at least be very aware of all those highs and lows of the story and um, you know, how it's all bolting together. So when you first sat down to write your first book, did you basically just sit down and start writing for months or how, how did that come about? The first thing I did um, was I felt I needed um, a sort of a catalyst or I needed some impetus because I, would, well, I was a corporate kind of person mm. going in, sitting at a desk all day and at the, at the end of the day I'd come home and play mum. I had no nothing to base um, how to write. And I didn't know about places like the Sydney Writers' Centre and I didn't know about 
Um, you know, that there are wonderful books out there. I must be dim not to realize that there is a lot of wonderful help out there if you, if you go looking for it. Mm. What I thought was, I know what I'll do. I'll take a course. Um, but even that hadn't registered in my mind until I happened to be at the dentist and I was reading, you know, uh, we have a, I'm in Adelaide and we have a publication here called The Review, The Adelaide Review. And it's sort of for, um, and the arty sort of folk, you could say, mm-hmm. of, of the state. And um, it's free. And I was just flicking through it because I was nervous at the dentist. And um, this tiny little ad, and I mean tiny little column ad, leapt out at me. And it said, come and do a summer writing fiction course with Bryce Courtney. Mm. And that was what I needed. It, it found me. It was obviously waiting for me. And it, it gelled in my mind. That's what I need to do. I need to take a course. And I need to understand what writing is, how you do this sort of writing. But I need to learn from somebody who is a practitioner. I didn't want to just go and learn from a lecturer. I wanted to learn from somebody who understands and is selling books and, you know, writing bestsellers. And, and I've read The Power of One, and it had moved me tremendously when I was a youngster. Mm. And so I thought, well, I want to meet the man himself anyway, so why not? And And so... I couldn't believe I was taking a week off from work and from my family and flying down to Hobart for this very selfish indulgence of a week, but I did it, and um, an epiphany occurred down there, and I felt as though Bryce was talking only to me. There were 15 other students in the room, but I felt like he was lecturing only to me, and everything he said resonated. Everything he taught um, felt right. It just sort of entered me and felt right, and um, I took all of what he taught us, came home and I wrote my first manuscript in about 12 weeks. Wow. Yeah, it was done, <laughs> done and dusted. And I had my first contract within three months. So it was just, wow. it was the right time in my life. I was, you know, 39 and busting a gut to um, make sure that I had this book written and, and a contract by the time I was 40, which was my <laughs> big goal. And uh, I was going through a life-changing event and it did. It changed my life. He Absolutely. changed my life. Thank you, Bryce Courtney. Thank you, Bryce Courtney. I've never stopped thanking him. He's a he's a marvellous person in my life still. He still pushes me and bullies me and, um, you know, he, he's very proud. And, and to have that, that kind of that strength always making me feel good about my writing is, is brilliant. You know, every, everybody needs a Bryce in their life. I think. Mm. So your most recent book, Royal Exile, yeah. that's the first book in the Valisar trilogy. Yes. So tell us about Royal Exile and how what inspired the trilogy and where that world came from. The world, you know, when I write my fantasies, I, I do base the worlds, um, call me lazy, but I base my worlds on our world. So anyone who reads my book will instantly recognize a world they know. There is nothing extraordinary about it, and I like it that way. So it anchors them into a reality they understand. And then anything else I do, which might involve magic or um, strange events, they have that anchor into a world they understand. And for me, that's very, very important. Um, I don't do a lot of world development because I don't want to, and I I don't want the world to feel strange. So I borrow from history. I I go straight for a medieval setting, which I like. Um, And apart from Persheron, which was my previous trilogy, which I used the Ottoman Empire and a Byzantine um, era, I mainly stick with a sort of a late medieval times, and it's usually Europe. So that's the feel, that's the world, and everything feels right in that world um, and totally plausible until 
magic might occur. And I keep the magic quite um, slim on the ground, you could say, or thin on the ground. Um, I don't like to have lots and lots and lots of magic. Um, I tend to keep it as a backdrop or there's a vein of it running through the story. The majority of my stories are always about human, human struggle. That's what I'm after. Um, and this story is the story I suppose I've always been gearing up to write. It's, it's a favorite book I've written. Um, and, and that feels good to say because I always thought my favorite book was about um, six books ago. Right. Um, so this is a lovely feeling to think I've just produced a book that I'm uh, not only proud of, but I love. Uh, deep within, I love this book. I love this story and its potential. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that when I write, I don't write to a plan. I don't plot. I don't know who's who or where the story's going. I know so little about my stories. Mm. It's embarrassing. Um, And I'm just delighted that this story has such scope. And and it's a great mystery to me where it's it's headed. Um, And it really emerged from The Quickening, which was my second trilogy, where I had this character, a king. He was a sort of a considered a barbarian um and he threatened to um make cannibals of his people he threatened to um roast some people and eat them to to prove a point he never did but that idea stuck in my head and i i really love this idea of the barbarian tyrant and so that's really where this story um emerged but but it's taken on a whole new shape and and form and it's the story itself is is quite simply um, that a barbarian tyrant has invaded a peaceful um, series of realms, slaughtered a lot of people, um, built his own empire from the from the ashes, so to speak, and is actually doing quite a good job of it by the time we meet him in book two. But he's ruthless and um, and quite cold and calculating, um, also quite charismatic despite all that, and he. I know that I really, really like Lothar. I can't, can't help but be fascinated by him. And all the readers who are writing to me this morning who've already grabbed and read the book in a matter of hours, mm. which is very disturbing, um, <laughs> <laughs> they're all saying how much they love Lothar. And are we meant to? You know, they're saying this is really weird. He's the, he's the bad guy, but we all love him. And I, I thought that that's great because that's how I feel about him too. He's a mystery. I mean, I don't know where it's going, but I sense... There's so much more to him. So it's a story of, um, you know, usurping a throne and um, sending a young king into exile. Mm. Um, And also um, it's got a cast of thousands, as is usual with my book. So there's about nine storylines all coming out of this main sort of highway of a story. Um, and that's just typical for me because I don't plan anything. If I planned, I wouldn't dream of giving myself nine storylines and a billion characters to juggle. So, um, how do you manage nine storylines when you're when you're writing? Is there some element of planning once those storylines have taken shape? No, not at all. And really? It's really, I'm such a gunslinger, and um, <laughs> it's, it's very. Um, I feel quite sort of ashamed of myself to admit that because I know people would like to think, maybe readers would like to think, you know, that I've actually thought deeply about this and I've um, constructed this story for them, but I don't. I just suddenly think, oh, blimey, I'm losing track of, you know, Kieran or I've, uh, what's happened to Gabriel? And I think I'm, I must bring them back into the story. And so I go and find out where I'd left them and I weave them back in. I mean, that's, 
that's how it works. And for some reason that I cannot fathom, it all comes together by the end of the book. Yeah. And I firmly believe that this is to do with, um, you know, Becca Brain really does take care of business. Mm. I think when I go to sleep at night, there's a part of me that stays awake and says, all right, well, she's done all of this. Now we've got to make something happen with all of that because that changes how the story can go. And when I wake up in the morning and I sit down in front of the computer, it seems to flow. And I think, you know, aren't I a clover clogs? But really, I think the work is being done, you know, uh, back of brain. Mm. And I think that's just how, I, how I'm wired. Now, other writers do their plotting maybe, I don't want to say front of brain because I don't know how that all works, but they, they put it on paper and, or they have it somewhere mm. and they're conscious of where their story's going. Mm. I'm not. It's just a different method, really. Um, terrifying, but it, it works for me and I've produced quite a few books this way and I, I try not to analyse it too much in case I jinx myself and, you know, but it just works. Considering you, you know, had your turning point at, at 39 and 40, you're extremely pr- prolific. Can you describe to us your typical writing day? You must get through so much. Um, well, you know, what you discover when you're um, writing for a living, um, you know, is that the writing is the tip of the iceberg. Beneath that is um, a lot of administrative stuff, a lot of editing, a lot of um, emailing and talking to publishers um, around the world, mm. um, uh, lots of visits to bookshops, lots of appearances. If you're going to make a go of it and make a business, make it, you know, make it pay you a living, then you have to do that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. That's all part of the course of being a writer. We have to be entertainers today, not just, you know, sit in our quiet little writing rooms and produce glorious work. We have to actually go out and then sell the work, promote the work. So. Um, the, the, the role of a writer is constantly changing. And so what I do is I'm quite disciplined about when I'm writing. So I'm usually, I'll actually get going by around 9.30. That's when the writing begins. Up until 9.30, I'm emailing and answering questions and touching base with a lot of people. From mm-hmm. 9.30, um, phones go off. I stop looking at email, even though I'm a junkie for email, and <laughs> try not to notice that little ping in the background. Um, and I write for probably a solid three hours. That's the maximum I'll do. Um, and in that time, you know, I'll produce um, a hefty word count. I never read what I wrote yesterday. Right. Never. I never think about what was written. I only push the story forward, and I think that is the key to why I can always, uh, at the end of each writing period, I've written a new chapter or I've written a new section of the book. And each time you can operate like that, the story never uh, falters. It's always going forward. So providing I'm throwing out a couple of thousand words a day, very quickly will a manuscript come together. Mm. Um, And I only write for four days of the week. I give myself Friday off to be a mum, to be totally... Um, shallow and and sort of go off for coffees with friends and just sort of um, let go of the story. Um, Mm. But for the Monday to Thursday, I am really powering through the story. And the first time I read the story is when it's finished and the draft readers are reading it. So I read it with fresh eyes for the first time when it's finished. So I just power through the whole thing, hoping to goodness it makes sense. (laughs) Um, And then when I go back, I'm amazed by 
um, that there is, you know, 40 chapters or, mm. and that this story works. And it's, as I say, it's, it's a bit of a, um, a magical event for me as well. It, it, it does all seem to come together. I'm not saying I don't need to do editing or, or rewriting or, um, you know, streamlining something. Naturally, that all has to be done. But the, the skeleton of the story is always there, always. So even though you write four days a week, are you in that world or thinking about it the rest of the time or do you actually switch off? No, I switch off completely. By really? after my Yes, after my three hours, I'm done and dusted and I don't want to know anything about that story. Um, I'm probably editing another story by then. Yeah. Because um, at the moment, this year, I'm juggling four novels, which is um, oh my God. pretty full on. And so I have to switch off from Valisar and move on to another novel that I'm working on. Um, and it's, I'm not usually writing two novels at the same time. I'm, I'm editing mm. two novels, writing one and researching the fourth. So that's how it sort of all bolts together. Um, I switch off completely, completely. When the, I have 17-year-olds and they're sort of rambling in at sort of 3.30, quarter to four, and they need attention. You know, they're doing year 12 and... You know, they're raiding the fridge and demanding uh, proofreading this, and I just cannot be in a different world. I have to be quite grounded and alert and paying attention, you know, at at that stage. So I do. I just switch off and I switch back on um, at 8 o'clock the next morning. And I suppose one of the reasons that you need to compartmentalise is that you also write crime fiction. I do. Under the name of Lauren Crow. So how did you get into writing crime fiction and, and, and why? How did you develop that interest in it? Because you seem so passionate about fantasy. And, and why do you use another name? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer all of those. <laughs> firstly, <laughs> firstly I, um, when, when you're writing in a particular genre all the time, um, it's very easy to get totally swamped by it. So rather than writing fantasy and only reading fantasy, um, I needed to withdraw from fantasy. There is this uh, notion, and I subscribe to it, that if I'm reading too much fantasy, I'm always nervous that I might borrow too heavily from someone else's ideas. Mm. So I, I like to keep myself very distant from uh, what else is going on in the fantasy world in terms of reading other people's work. I do read their work, but I read it when I'm on holiday or I'm I'm not writing fantasy. So, um, you know, I tended to read crime. So when I'm not when I'm not writing, I'm reading crime. And I was really loving it. It was such a total um distraction from fantasy. Um and I really got into it and started devouring crime in the same way that I was devouring fantasy for a while. Um and then I suppose normally the pattern for a new writer is to produce, with fantasies, they like you to produce a book every six months so that, you know, they can keep the momentum going for the trilogy. Mm. But when you hit a certain level, the publisher wants to pull you back to just one big book launch a year and just release one book at Christmas time. Um, and I'd hit that point where HarperCollins um, preferred to bring me out as a trade um, size and just bring it out each Christmas. But that left me with this gaping hole for the rest of the year. Um, and, and they found it quite amusing that I was complaining that I, I wasn't able to bring out more books. <laughs> and uh, so they got tired of my bleating and said, look, why don't you just write something else? Why don't you just stop worrying about fantasy? Give us our one fantasy a year, but write something else and we'll take a look at it. So I said, well, like what? And they said, well, you're always going on about crime. Have a go to crime. <laughs> so that's exactly how it came about. Wow. I, I wrote this crime, and we were all rather astonished that um, it gelled and it worked and, you know, it, it 
had merit and they said, yeah, okay, we're going to buy two of these and, and see how you go. But you have to write under a different name right. because we don't want to, um, we don't want to confuse your readership. And I, you know, I was never comfortable, fully comfortable with that decision because I thought that the readership would happily embrace um, me writing in a, in a different genre. And if they didn't want to read crime, they wouldn't feel obliged to. You know, they, if they wanted to read it, they would. At least they'd know who I was. But uh, HarperCollins preferred to do it this way, and I had to respect that. But it seems that um, we're all now in agreement that we should reintroduce me as um, Fiona McIntosh writing as Lauren Crow, because it's a lot easier for the booksellers if, if they can say, well, you know, this is Fiona. You know, right. she's really behind it. And and that actually adds weight to it now rather mm. than um, detracting from the fantasy. So I only wrote under a, a pseudonym for a short while. We will be, for book two um, of the crime, we'll be moving back into my own name. Right. Um, and how did you pick the name, Lauren Crow? Oh, it took forever. <laughs> Every name I threw at them, HarperCollins would say, no. No, no, that's not working for us. And it went on and on. We must have gone through dozens and dozens of names. Right. And then in the end, um, I mean, there were all sorts of sort of strategies for it as well. You know, let's have a nice, short, sharp and edgy surname. Let's keep it under 10 letters. Let's, uh, you know, uh, keep it in this part of the alphabet. And all this strategy that just sends you balmy. Yeah. But in the end, um, it came down to a weird and wonderful event where an injured crow, um, we rescued an injured crow. Mm. And uh, a, a crow is a bird of vermin um, in mm. the fantasy world. And also in medieval times, a crow brings a message. Mm. And this crow was sadly, badly hurt. And he wasn't meant to make it, but we made him make it. And the day he flew away um, was a very sad day for all of us, but it was a marvelous day at the same time. Mm. Then he came back. He came back for just an hour and he sat with me because he'd been with us for months and he sat with me. And it was just, I mean, I know you'll all laugh and think, oh, this is this is Fiona going off on one of her tangents. But I just felt like he was passing on a message. And I thought, yeah, my surname has to be Crow. Oh, that's gorgeous. Um, and so when as soon as I said it to HarperCollins, I said, how about Lauren Crow? They just said, it's perfect. Oh, so well, there you go. Yeah. So um, it was, uh, you know, it was destiny, I think. It was an omen, so it worked. And we won't completely let go of Lauren Crow, but the readership and the booksellers will know that it's, it's much more openly that it's me now. Yeah. And so, you talk about this magical way that it all gels together after you just keep, you know, getting the words out. What do you think are some of the... Um, techniques or, or tips that you would give to people to help them gel their stories together? It, it, if they're going to write like me, if they're going to free fall slightly and not be too, um, uh, I'm trying to find the right word, too nitpicky about their own writing, and it's very easy to do that. Mm. If they're prepared to sort of just let go for a while and, and have a go at writing like this, then the main thing is that you do not tinker with what you've already written. Mm. That is number one, because it's so easy to go back and tinker, tinker, tinker. And what happens, months go by and you're not producing a manuscript. I talk to people all the time who, when I say to them, okay, so, you know, they want to write and they're, they're very keen on this piece of work. And how long have you been working on this? Oh, you know, a few years now. And I think a few years, are you kidding? I would have put out, you know, 
um, three million books by now. And it's just because <laughs> of the... No, I'm exaggerating, of course. But it's just the way that I write. I do not allow myself to go back and keep nitpicking at my own work. Mm. Um, we are never going to get it perfect. And I tend to hand over responsibility to my editor anyway. I always... I trust my editors implicitly. I, I totally understand that we're a partnership, a, a working partnership, and, and they have the best interests of the book and me at heart. So I, I hand over that trust, and I think, well, whatever we're now going to do, we're going to do over and over again for the next few months. We're going to keep refining this manuscript. Why would I tinker for years mm. when I can get an editor to do a lot of that thinking for me with fresh eyes and a completely, you know, coming to it from a different angle than I do? Mm. So I've never had a problem with um, sending out the first even... I mean, my poor editors, they often get the first draft because I'm screaming onto the next project. Um, and they're quite comfortable to say, all right, all right, send it quite raw. And, of course, then I'll have to do a fair bit of work on it. Mm. But I, once you hand over that responsibility, it's a lovely feeling because you think, well, that's your problem now is to come back <laughs> to me and say what needs to be done with this work. Um, I, don't, I don't have to stress on the decision of, oh, have I got that character right? Or is this reading just the right way? You see, I just hand over responsibility. I delegate brilliantly and um, make it someone else's problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that um, some writers create problems for themselves. If they're not strict enough with themselves, then they will keep going back and wanting it to be perfect first time, and it's not going to be. And it's a form of procrastination too, isn't it? It is. It's a fear. It's, it's, it's all of those bad things happening to you that you're not trusting yourself and uh, you're, you're frightened of showing it to anyone else. It's all of those totally normal and perfectly understandable uh, complexes that all of us writers suffer. Um, I suffer it too, but I have taught myself how to let it go and, and take the consequences. Um, and, and that's exactly what I do. I just let it go after the first... First draft, I read it through and I think, oh, dear, that, there's a bit of a hole there. But, and then I'll email my editor and say, there's a bit of a hole in Chapter 7, but I'll fix that mm -hmm. on, the next, on the next pass. And the editors are brilliant. And, and a lot of them just really enjoy seeing it in its raw state. They're mm -hmm. quite prepared, providing there aren't spelling errors and all that sort of thing, mm -hmm. providing they're getting quite a polished manuscript in terms of the presentation and how it's going to read, then it's fine. I wouldn't suggest somebody does that for their first um, first effort, mm. um, definitely not. I think it's worth putting in the time um, and the editing. But it's almost worth giving it to other draft readers. Please, everyone listening should not feel embarrassed to show their work to other people. Find some booksellers, find some librarians, find some readers, mm. people who don't owe you anything, and will give you an honest appraisal of the work. Give it out to as many people as you dare. I mean, I use six draft readers, so um, I wouldn't hesitate to use ten draft readers and just say, tell me what you think. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean to say I'm going to do what they say, but you will find common threads where they're saying, you know, I loved so-and-so, but it didn't make sense when he did this. Mm. And if enough people say that, you know, you've got to fix that area. Um, so using draft readers is a great way to go. Um, n not going back and editing, editing, editing. Setting a word count for each day is a very good discipline to get mm. into. Um, or setting a time limit, saying, I am going to now write two hours every day, one hour every day, whatever suits your lifestyle. Everyone's got a different set of stresses and needs in their lives. Um, 
you know, people who are running busy jobs, busy families, they don't have as much time as someone who perhaps is is home all day. Mm. Um, so everybody has different um, times that they can give. But the main thing is continuity so that you're writing each day if you can um, and that you're writing in a disciplined session. So either it's to write 500 words every day or it's to sit down and write for an hour every day. But it's to push the story forward. It's not You don't spend that hour reading what you wrote before. Yeah, that's it's, right. You use that hour only to take the story forward and to be utterly disciplined about it. And I, and to me, that's the key. It's the discipline. The discipline of writing. That's right. The, the discipline is the is so important, isn't it? Because you don't sit around waiting for inspiration to hit. No. You sit down at your computer and start writing. Just start writing. Just start writing anything. That's what I do. And I'm not saying I start writing about, uh, you know, a pot of tea or something. <laughs> but I just, I leave myself a leading sentence usually for the next day because... You know, I, I will have, by the time I come around a 24-hour cycle and I'm back in front of the computer to, to write Valisar, mm. I might have looked at three other manuscripts by then and, and, and played with other um, items, um, maybe written a few blogs or things like that. So by the time I come back, I very um, understandably might have lost that mindset. Where was I yesterday? What was I thinking? Where, where might I have been taking this? Mm. And so I just lead, leave a leading sentence. So I just... I don't even read back what's. I just read that sentence and think, okay, I go on from here, and and off I go. Um, and so that's a, a little trick that they might like to try and just see if that works for them. Not everyone's wired to to write like that. I I do understand, and some people like to write um, quite clear notes. Mm. But uh, if you are going to write notes for yourself, that's fine. But have a cutoff point where you say, right, from this date, I begin writing. Um, and not just spend the whole time just plotting and planning, you know, and years can go by plotting yes. a book, world building, you know, imagining the world in its entirety. Have a go doing it the other way, just letting the world develop as you're going along and, and see what, what that throws up for you. Well, great advice. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Fiona. Oh, an absolute I could talk for hours with you. <laughs> we'll have <laughs> to do it again. Much. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fiona. Okay, pleasure. Bye. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.